Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Proverbs, and it comes from a variety of Proverbs. And uh, as I read it, you can follow along. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Let not your hearts envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We're going through a series in the book of Proverbs this summer, and we're trying to look at what it looks like to live a life of folly. And the way we're doing that is we're looking at what has traditionally been called the seven deadly sins. Now, originally, I was supposed to do the topic of lust, but I switched it up this week because I was in Chicago this week, and uh, I think I need to think about lust a little bit more. So uh, I'm going to do lust uh, as our final one next time. But you know, today we're going to talk about envy, and uh, I don't know how much we really actually know about envy and how much we think about envy because as I was preparing this, I myself realized I had not really thought about envy and the effect that envy has on us and on our lives. Uh, There's a short book by a guy named, a writer named Joseph Epstein, and I think he's like an essayist and he was like editor of uh, a couple of magazines or periodicals. But he wrote this short book on envy and uh, when I read that book, I actually learned a great deal about envy and he's not writing from a, a Christian perspective per se but he is drawing from all these philosophers and all these past thinkers and thoughts about the idea of envy. And uh, let me just say from the outset, I think it's gonna be tedious to just say, oh, and Joseph Epstein says this, Joseph Epstein says that. Uh, Just assume a lot of this comes from him in terms of insights. But one of the things that he says is, you know, if you think about the other seven deadly sins, if you think about anger, if you think about lust, gluttony, pride, sloth, greed, those sins, you can actually derive a little bit of pleasure out of it, right? at least in the beginning, or at least for a short period of time. But what he says about envy is there is no pleasure in envy. He says we tend to exist on at least three levels. On the one level, there is the person that we are to the public. Uh, That would be like how we appear to maybe, right, here on Sunday. Maybe that's how we present ourselves through social media. There's a second level. There's a person who is known by people that you're intimate with, so the, the person that your friends and family know you to be. But finally, there's another level in which there's a person in which we are only known to ourselves, and that's where you usually find things like your aspirations, your resentments, your fantasies, and everything else that you tend to hide from other people. And what Epstein says is this, it's often at that final level where envy resides. It's often hidden, and uh, we don't want people to see it. We don't want people to discover it. Why? Because what envy does is envy gets to the core of a person, and if someone were to see your envy or if someone were to accuse you of envy, it has the ability to make you feel like less of a person, to feel a little bit diminished. You know, if someone were to accuse you of envying them, and I, I can't imagine a scenario where that actually happens, where somebody says, you envy me, but... Uh, If someone were to accuse you of envying them, just think about what kind of effect that would have on you in the moment. I think you'd probably be a little bit insulted because it's kind of like somebody telling you, my life is better than yours. Your life is not as (coughs) important or as worthwhile as my life. You know, for me, um, I probably actually do the opposite. And what I tend to say is this, I might say, you know, I don't envy this person. 
which actually shows that I probably do envy this person, but I might say something like this, you know, oh, I don't envy that, you know, that popular pastor who everybody loves, who has this super fast growing church, who's being invited to speak at all these different places and everybody just loves him. And I would say, I don't envy that person. But you know what's actually going on in my heart is uh, that's my way of trying to validate my life uh, because deep down, there probably is some envy of that person and when I envy that person, it's kind of saying my life is not as important or as worthwhile. And so you see, uh, you know, for me to even admit that to you, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, right? It's very embarrassing to admit. Nobody wants to admit envy. And so I think Joseph Epstein is right in that, you know, it's something that is, remains very hidden within the recesses of our hearts. And because it remains hidden, I think that's why it can be so dangerous. We're tempted to hide it, we're tempted to bury it, we're tempted to cover it up and just keep it to ourselves. You know, supposedly, there is actually a word in every culture or in every language uh, for envy. And that probably suggests that everybody has the experience of envy, that maybe envy is a universal human experience. And that begs the question, what, what exactly is envy? Uh, <clears throat> envy begins with desire, but it doesn't end there. When we are envious of someone, we may be envious of something that they have, but envy is actually a little bit more than that. Envy is probably a desire for somebody else's life. And you know, that might sound harmless, but it can actually be a little bit destructive. Another author, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote a book on the seven deadly sins, and here's what she says about envy. She says, envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it is a destroyer. Rather than have anyone happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. And what she's doing, she's pointing out two dynamics that come with envy. The first dynamic is this. Envy takes place in the context of community. Envy doesn't just impact the individual, but envy will impact the relationships that you have with other people. The second thing she points out is this. Envy senses that some kind of injustice has been committed. Envy says, my life is like this, and this person's life is like that, and that's not fair. Why isn't my life more like this person's life? And so you know what it does? Rather than enjoying the good things about that person's life, what Envy says is, I'm going to try to bring that person down because I can't enjoy the goodness that is happening in their lives. You know, I, I wonder where the, we get the word, that's where the Germans get the word schadenfreude from. Uh, if you've never heard of the word schadenfreude, there's actually a song about it in the musical Avenue Q. Schadenfreude is a German word that basically means taking the pleasure in the misery of others. And uh, one of the examples in the song from Avenue Q uh, is when a straight-A student gets a B and you just take great pleasure in it. That's schadenfreude. Now, why would someone derive pleasure from something like that? Why would one take pleasure in the misery of others? Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's envy. Now, we might try to bring everyone else down, uh, and the way we do it is probably actually going to be pretty subtle, and we may not even be realize that envy is the reason why we're doing it. Uh, you know, perhaps this was you when you were growing up, or perhaps you observe this in children today, but, you know, when a child is envious of their sibling because maybe they get all the attention, maybe they get all the accolades, then you know what happens. That child may decide to act out, or maybe not decide, but that child will act out why? So that the family doesn't get to enjoy that sibling's good success or that sibling's accolades. 
You know, if good things are happening in a particular community, then Envy might try to point out everything that is still wrong with this community and be critical of it. That's a way to bring them down. That's what Dorothy Sayers is saying uh, about Envy. Envy is a great leveler. If I don't have the life that I think I should have, then here's what I'm going to do. I am going to make sure that others enjoy the life that they have a little bit less. That's what Envy does. Now, Envy also does something to us personally, and here's where we get to the Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes bones rot. Visualize that for a moment. Envy makes bones rot, rotting bones. You know, envy destroys you in a very particular way. Uh, let me make another confession that's quite embarrassing to admit that only my dentist knows. I have horrible teeth. I have a lot of cavities. And uh, some of you know Dentist Sam. Poor Dentist Sam <laughs> working on my teeth. <laughs> anyway, just think about uh, what cavities do to your teeth or how, how it happens. You know, cavities oftentimes start out very small, undetected. You can't feel it. It doesn't cause you that much pain when you're eating. Uh, but it begins to grow slowly and it begins to rot your teeth very slowly. And you know, since it's not a, not a part of your body that's actually visible to other people, the presence of that cavity is actually hidden from others, right? And yet, if you allow that cavity to continue rotting, you know what happens? It starts to infect all these other things. It infects the nerve, which is why I got a root canal. Uh, it affects, actually, I didn't know this, but it actually affects your healthier teeth that are next to the cavity. That's kind of how envy destroys you. It may not have an effect on you immediately or right away, but over a period of time, you're going to waste away from the inside. See, more often, you can identify envy by the kind of person uh, you become. Uh, envy will probably turn you into an uh, unhappy, kind of a miserable person who can never really enjoy uh, the things in life. Moreover, uh, you're probably going to be pretty critical of other people, and you're not going to be able to enjoy the good things that are happening in other people's lives. And uh, you begin to resent people when good things are happening to them. You know, when you start to resent other people, a couple things happen. First, you, you just start to see people in this negative light, and you have an urge to point out all of their flaws. You'll want them to be miserable, and so you point out their flaws, and maybe you want them to feel bad or guilty about something. You know, constructive criticism obviously is a good thing, and accountability is a good thing, and it's good to point out flaws in general. Uh, but that kind of thing is meant to be done out of love, and it's supposed to be building to relationships. But, you know, when you criticize out of envy, that's going to have a tendency to destroy the relationship and probably isolate you. And, again, that process may take a long time, but the root will probably go down, come down to envy in your heart, just like rotting bones. You know, one of the ways that I have seen envy working in this way is I think when people, when we feel like we're running behind everybody else, I experienced it after I graduated college. I, I even experienced it after I graduated seminary. After college, people were starting their careers. People started making money. Uh, after seminary, people were getting these ministry positions and people started getting ordained. When I, when I got out of seminary, you know, I had to work a couple of jobs, uh, and jobs that I didn't love, but just a job, jobs as a way to get by. Uh, my first year of marriage, uh, my wife and I, we lived in my parents' basement apartment <laughs> during our first year because we didn't make enough money to be able to get our own place. And, you know, I was pretty old when that happened. I think I was like 28 when that happened. 
And uh, I, I really felt like I was falling behind everybody else. And, you know, looking back, I think I was probably a little bit envious of other people because uh, I don't think I could fully enjoy the good things that were happening to those around me. You know, if you're single and if your friends start getting married, beware. Beware of the same thing happening. In the beginning, weddings are super fun, but what eventually happens, you start hating, you start like hating weddings, right? And you can't be happy for your friends that are getting married if you have envy in your heart. If you have, if you're married and uh, everybody around you is having kids and you can't have kids, beware of envy. And you start to resent the fact that everybody seems to be getting pregnant and except you and you won't be able to be happy for their happiness. That's, that's how envy works in our hearts, friends. You know, on the flip side, one of the ways that you can tell that envy is not in your heart and one of the ways you can tell that you're growing maturity in your heart is if you are genuinely happy for the good things that are happening to those around you. That's probably a good sign that there is no envy in your heart. Now, by the way, let me just say a side point. Uh, that's why I'm not crazy about the phrase stage of life. Uh, I think stage of life conveys a false sense of advancement, and if you're, quote-unquote, stuck in a particular stage of life, then maybe it leaves you with a sense of being left behind, but that's not how God measures advancement, and neither should we. But nevertheless, that's the language of our culture and the language of society. And so one of the things you have to do is make sure envy is not in your heart because it will destroy you and it will hurt your relationships and it will probably make you a miserable, lonely person. And so that begs the question, how do we then deal with our envy? How do we get the envy out of our hearts? Well, Proverbs 23, 17, it gives us a clue. And it says this, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Remember, I said that being accused of envy is a way to diminish the value of a person. And, uh, you know, in another book that I've been using for this series, uh, the author says this. He says, envy depends on comparative self-value. Therefore, the only escape from envy is actually to find a completely different foundation for your self-worth. So if, en if envy, you're, you are comparing yourself to other people and you are comparing your life to other people and you are measuring the value of your life to other people, it simply means this, you have built your life on a wrong foundation and what you need is a completely different foundation. And so what should that foundation be? Where should we derive our value and our worth in our life? Well, guess what, friends? You are at church, so what am I gonna say? You find it from God. He is your foundation. He has to be the measure of your value and your worth. And that's why I think Proverbs 23, 17 directs us to continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Now, how do we make sure that God is our foundation? How do you get rid of envy? I don't think the way you go about it is by saying this, uh, I'm just not going to be envious of that person anymore. I'm going to tell myself that I'm special, I'm good, I'm unique, my life is good, and I don't need validation from anybody else. Yeah, that, that's a good thing to say, but at the same time, I don't think you can actually will yourself to get rid of envy. I don't think we're strong enough to do that. But here again, Proverbs points to the answer, to the solution when it talks about the fear of the Lord. Now, I've said this a couple times in this series, but the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, it's not be about being scared of God, but the fear of the Lord is having this deep reverence for Him. And deep reverence, I think, is actually the key to getting rid of the envy in our hearts. Why? Well, there's this philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and when he talks about envy, he actually connects envy to the idea of admiration. 
He says, an admirer who feels he cannot be happy by surrendering himself becomes envious of that which he admires. Admiration is happy self-surrender. Envy is unhappy self-satisfaction. Now, what is he saying there? This is what he's saying. You know, if you admire something, let's, for example, take creativity. If you admire creativity, without surrendering yourself, that admiration for creativity will fall in danger of turning into envy. So rather than saying this, rather than saying, I love how creative this person is and enjoying their creativity, you begin to say, gee, I wish I could be that creative. And at that moment, you cannot enjoy creativity anymore. Envy, I think, is like putting, uh, you know, if you like cilantro, this illustration doesn't apply, but I hate cilantro. Envy is like putting cilantro like on top of a sweet donut, right? It ruins the good things in life. Kierkegaard would say that the key to defeating envy it's not, doesn't come out of your self-will. It doesn't come from self-talk. The way you defeat envy is going to be through admiration, which he defines as happy self-surrender. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that God gives us a way to happy self-surrender by giving us the greatest reason to admire he shows us his glory and he shows us his beauty in such a profound way by sending us his son. You know, in John 1, it says this, we have seen the glory of God in the glory of the son. Jesus dwelt among us and he opened the way to the glorious presence of God. That that beauty is no longer subdued, but that beauty is something that goes forth into the world because the temple curtain is torn in two and the presence of God goes forth by way of the Holy Spirit. You know, we often use a metaphor that sin blinds, but what does sin blind us to, right? What does sin blind us to? Well, we might say sin blinds us to the truth and knowing the truth, and yes, of course that is true. But you know, sin blinds us from beauty. It blinds us from seeing beauty. That's why there's a flaming sword in the Garden of Eden guarding the way to the presence of God. That's why there's a veil in the, in the temple guarding the way to the Holy of Holies. That's what sin does. But when Jesus dies, and when he, after he dies upon the cross, something amazing happens. That veil, that curtain that divides, it is torn in two. And because of Christ, because of the cross, sin no longer prevents us from seeing the beauty of God. Rather, God's beauty goes forth after Christ, in a way no one of the Old Testament could have seen before. You know, when we start to see that beauty, the beauty of love, the beauty of grace, the beauty of mercy, the beauty of humility, the beauty of glory, I think something will happen to the envy of our hearts. I think it disappears because God's beauty will draw us further away from ourselves into the place that Kierkegaard calls happy self-surrender. It's going to happen by way of admiration. Now, where do we see that in the Bible? There's actually a good case study of that dynamic happening in the Bible in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, there's a guy named Asaph, and guess what he's struggling with? He is struggling with envy. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant. And what he's doing is he's looking at the, the quote-unquote wicked of the world and the arrogant, and he's saying, look how good their lives are. They're so wealthy. They're so fat. Fat meaning that they're well-fed, right? They're wealthy. They don't seem to have a care in the world. And what am I doing? All in vain am I trying to keep my hands pure. 
my life stinks compared to their lives. And therefore, his feet almost slipped. Therefore, he's doubting the goodness of God. But you know when the turning point takes place in that psalm? The turning point takes place when he enters into the sanctuary of God. Then there is this turning point. Then there is a shift in his mindset. Why? Because it's in the sanctuary of God where he gets a glimpse of the presence of God, where he gets a glimpse of the beauty of God and the glory of God and the holiness of God. And after that experience of worship, envy dissolves and his perspective and his heart is reoriented. And ultimately, what does he conclude? He concludes what we read in the beginning of our, of our worship. But as for me, it is good to be near God. If you want to get rid of envy in your hearts, you have to experience the beauty of God. Now, in one sense, what does that mean? That means that God has to do something to you. But in another sense, what that means is this. You have to put your place, yourself in the places where you can behold the beauty of God. What did Asaph do? He went into the sanctuary of God to worship. What can we do? Very simply, we can utilize the means of grace and we can worship. That means you can't approach God when it's simply convenient to you or when you need his help. That's not going to do anything to the envy in your hearts. But you have to see God as the beautiful one rather than the useful one. The envy in your heart, I think, is actually going to start the doubting the goodness of God when all you, if all you see God as being useful to you because when he ceases to be useful to you uh, in your own mind, then your life is going to turn out like Asaph in the first half of Psalm 73. Practically, I think this means we just have to be a people of prayer. We have to prioritize those spiritual disciplines. We have to prioritize worship. We have to prioritize communal worship when we come together on Sundays and when we sing songs of praise and worship. Sometimes it means we have to just put our smartphones down and spend some time with the Lord in prayer. Sometimes that means you got to make a better effort coming to church on time. <laughs> Ooh, I think that one hurt a lot of people. I know today's a parade. I know MTA delays. I know kids don't get ready. I know all that. Don't worry. I'm not talking about a once-off thing. Uh, but you got to come on time to worship and put yourself in a position to experience uh, the beauty of God as we sing praises to him. But here's the other thing. I think the breadth of the work of the Holy Spirit actually allows us to see God's beauty manifested in places beyond the sanctuary because the sanctuary is no longer the localized place where we see the presence of God alone. I think we can actually see God's beauty all over now because of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, God's beauty is probably hidden in plain sight, meaning it's right there for us to see, but we just don't see it and we miss it all the time because we are not in tune to the things that God is doing through His Spirit. Uh, let me just end with a couple of examples of this. You know, uh, this whole week, I was in Chicago, some of you know, and the reason I was in Chicago is because I'm taking a class um, that um, actually the church is paying for, so thank you for, for that class. But uh, I, I think it was a, uh, not to be hyperbolic, I think this was kind of a life-changing week for me, right? This is a life-changing experience in many ways. And let me, let me just give you a taste. I, I really have to process everything that I saw this week, but let me just give you a taste of some of the things I saw. Uh, 
You know, for this class, the topic is on race and racialization and uh, just learning about the system and systemic injustices and uh, how ministry is done in various different kinds of contexts. And uh, so we went to a lot of different places in Chicago and it wasn't like, you know, the cool, nice places of Chicago, like downtown Chicago, uh, where uh, you might typically go, but it was really the parts of Chicago that uh, maybe we wouldn't venture to go and maybe, I, you know, I personally probably wouldn't venture to go. One of the places I went to was a maximum security prison. Maximum security prison, uh, first time I've ever been inside prison walls. Um, the inmates there, they, they've done some serious crimes, uh, definitely murders. And uh, the seminary that I'm, uh, I was at, they actually partnered with the prison and they offer seminary classes to some of the inmates. And so we, we met with some of the students and these students are actually like the cream of the crop of the prison in terms of the inmates. Uh, these are people who have been rehabilitated. These are people who really uh, visibly love the Lord. And a lot of them were actually serving life sentences. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in Illinois, Illinois is one of two states that does not have parole. And I, I did not know that at all. And so they have no hope of actually getting out early. Uh, they have to fill, they have to uh, just do the time. And so prison can actually be a very hopeless place for some of these inmates because they're serving life sentences with no hope of parole. And as I was hearing some of the inmates' stories, uh, it was like remarkable that they had joy <laughs> and they had hope because of Christ. How, how do you have joy and hope in a place, in a maximum security prison? And then it is a miserable place. Going inside, it is a miserable place to be. Well, they have joy and hope because in Christ, through the gospel, Christ gives them something that not even a prison can take away. You know, in a place like this, I, I actually saw beauty. In an ugly place, in a place of darkness, I actually saw beauty. I saw the beauty of Christ, and I saw what Christ can actually do to people's hearts. And I actually came out of that prison encouraged. Actually, I came out of that prison feeling really helpless, uh, but I also came out of that prison feeling encouraged and really in awe of the power of the gospel and what God can do to the broken and the kind of uh, forgiveness and rec um, reconciliation and hope he can give. You know, I think another... Uh, person I listened to this week. I listened to the story of a woman. This woman works with high-risk youths in Chicago. Uh, Chicago has a lot of gang culture, a lot of gun violence. In fact, when we were at this church meeting with a pastor, uh, the pastor couldn't meet with us because last weekend there was this huge shooting where um, many people were killed. Uh, numerous dozens and dozens of people were injured. 17-year-old boy from his church who wasn't part of a gang, caught in the crosshairs, uh, was shot. And so he had, to, uh, uh, he had to miss our meeting and be with the family because this 17-year-old boy was shot. Um, this is a woman who works specifically with uh, gang members. And to the outside world, gang members are probably seen as bad kids, bad apples who ultimately get what they deserve because of the choices that they made. And of course, they make choices and they're accountable to those choices. Um, but there's also a lot of other factors that complicate it. But anyway, this woman, to this woman, these young uh, youths, teenagers, right? They're not even 18 yet. They're part of gangs. These young men, she says, these are my babies. And 
She loves them. She shows up at their court, and she says the first thing that people do when they show up to court, they look behind to see if anybody's there. And most of the time, nobody's there to support them, not even their family. No parent comes to support them. So she says, I need to make sure I'm there so they know that I am there with them as they're going through this. She cries with them when their friends get killed, which is a frequent occurrence. She goes to all their funerals. She goes to their friends' funerals. She goes to their family's funerals. She weeps with them. Uh, this is her life. And she does whatever it takes to make sure they know that they are loved. You know, she kept it pretty real. She wasn't painting this, like, wonderful, glorious picture of what she's doing. She's like, this, this is hard, right? This is really hard work. And, uh, you know, she's, as she's telling these stories, you know, she showed us a video of uh, just some of the stories of some of the youths that she's working with. And she's showing the video, and she can't watch it. She's, like, looking down the whole time. And she can't watch it because some of the guys in the video uh, are dead. <coughs> And she's still weeping over uh, some of these young men that she's working with. You know where I came out of um, that experience? That, that kind of love, that is beautiful. <laughs> right? That is so beautiful. That kind of dedication, the way she pours out her heart, her entire life, her emotions, to go through and, you know, she's an educated person, quote-unquote, one of the elites, came out of UNC, got master's degrees. But these are her babies, and she loves them. That's beauty. And when you see people with those kind of hearts, you see the beauty of God. And that, that does something, I think, to your faith. That does something to envy in our hearts. I ask you, do you see beauty? Do you see the beauty of God? Do you see the beauty of God reflected in one another? Do you see the beauty of God as you're out there in your daily lives? If you don't, it could be you. Certain could be you, and perhaps you're blind to seeing the beauty of God. It could also be the people that we are around, and perhaps we are not reflecting the beauty of God. I don't know which one it is, but either way, both are going to be a major problem. But either way, God gave us a major solution. He gave us his son, and that means something. He gave us his son, the supremely beautiful one. And his son demonstrated beauty, the beauty of love, the beauty of sacrifice, the beauty of mercy, the beauty of grace, when he died upon that cross for sinners like us, for the quote-unquote um, bad apples who made bad choices. Guess what, friends? That's us. For the rebellious, guess what, friends? That's us. For the poor and the beggars, guess what, friends? That is us. And yet Christ gave his life for us. If that is not a beauty that you see, that is not beauty that we see, may God have mercy on us. But when we experience that beauty, when the gospel does something to us, when we see the gospel at work in people's lives, our hearts will be filled with admiration. And when our hearts are filled with admiration, guess what? There will be no envy. There will be no envy. Let's admire the beautiful one, the glorious one.
And uh, we're going to sing in a few moments. Let's sing our hearts out and experience his beauty. Let's pray together.